Monday Morning Pastor podcast is brought to you by a partnership with Kairos Partnerships and Miss You Alliance. It's good to see you today, JR. You as well, Doug. Always a joy to be with you. Yeah, buddy. It's so good to be in your office again. Yeah. Now, although I'd love to jump into stuff in your office and talk about that, um, I have a question for you. What, and some of this has just sparked from, we had a conversation a few weeks ago um, around scripture and I've been reading through a Bible without uh, any numbers and yeah. it's just been super, super good. Yeah. What has that been like for you without so, chapters okay. and verses? How so, are you reading the scriptures differently because of that interview with Glenn Paul yeah, who led you to read yeah. this? And if you haven't listened to that interview, please go back and check it out because it's so good. Uh, it has it has radically shifted the overarching narrative of the story for me. Mm. Uh, I'm not seeing it as little pieces, but seeing the way that they flow together is things that I've realized you cannot see until you take those dang numbers out of it. Yeah, fascinating. It's impossible. So, that's awesome. So with that, though, it is a particular translation, but without yes. chapters or verses. So which Correct. translation is yes. that? So mine is the CEV okay. uh, at the moment. Which is what? And the contemporary English version. Correct. Right? So yeah. there's a lot of verily, verilies and okay. fun yeah. things like that. Has that been hard to adjust to? It or? has been a little bit. Okay. It yeah. has been a bit, a, bit of a, a bit of a challenge, but it's also been kind of a neat thing. And I feel like maybe in some ways that's why it feels like it's you know, I'm reading something totally fresh and new for the first time. Yeah, great. I didn't grow up. Uh, I didn't have the privilege to grow up in in a church that was a King James only, where they, they, were, they heard that language all the time. And so this is... <laughs> <laughs> this is kind of new language for me. Yeah. Um, but I've also really just enjoyed um, just the flow of the stories and even seeing how um, I also read. So I read, I've been, I read Luke, I'm reading through John and I've been reading epistles here and there. And it's amazing because when you read an epistle without the numbers, it's a letter and you read it as a letter and it yeah. changes the whole dynamic of the thing. And I'm you like, don't say come back next week and I'll read the next paragraph <laughs> right, for you of yeah. this letter. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I can't wait. And even realizing how, how if I was an early church hearer of a letter, I would be so frustrated if you just read the introduction and then left for a week. I'd be like, come on, please. <laughs> so this is CEV. Right. What have been what has been your go-to translation of choice? And and again, let me preface this yes. for our listeners. You and I know this. Like, we're not trying to get into a translation war or my translation can beat up your translation, okay? <laughs> or my translation made honor roll and yours didn't. Um, but I'm saying there's a vast variety, a good variety. Those are we good need, bumper stickers. We, we need many different yes, translations. we do. Right? From King James to the message and everything in between. But um, I'm more curious about not only what you use, but more curious about why you mm. pick that one and how you're being shaped and benefiting from that particular translation. So before a few weeks ago of reading um, the CEV without chapters or verses, what has been your go-to or translation or translations of choice? Yeah. Or do you use different translations depending upon what and how you're reading the Bible? Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm one of those guys that normally has two to three translations close by yeah. uh, when I'm reading. But my go-to one that I read most days is the NRSV. Yeah, and some of that is the New uh, Revised Standard Version. I really like the yeah, New Revised cool. Standard Version because, um, first of all, it is a it's a Bible that was put out by the Renovare Institute, and so there's just so much stuff in there about the inner life that, for me, even as I'm reading it, it really okay. I've just appreciated it. Uh, I like the language. It works well, um, but when I'm just looking to read for for just the sake of reading um, and just to try to get to capture what's happening, uh, it it is normally the New Living Translation. Yeah. I really like the way that that mm -hmm. reads. Yeah, um, yeah. I could probably go on. I you know I read the NIV. Uh, I also read the ESV. I read the NASB when I'm really looking uh, when I'm really trying to understand some of the different pieces with the word. And then I also pull out my Greek Reader New Testament from time to time, which mm -hmm. it's all Greek on there. And I don't really know what half of it means, but just to see some of those things is pretty cool. But yeah. beyond that, how about you, Jared? Like, what translation are you using? Like, what do you use? Like, and not just what, but why? Why do yeah. you use that particular one? Yeah, for years I used NIV, and I think uh, I think for very pragmatic reasons. Actually, one, it was prevalent, and so it was around. People gave me NIVs. I bought an NIV. I used it. Uh, when I preach, I've often used NIV because that's the majority of people with the the Bible that they have. So it just be, kind of became what most people are used to. Mm -hmm. um, 
But I, I do I do use different translations and have found at different seasons different translations to be helpful. Everything from the ESV to uh, New Living Translation, the Message, NIV. So, um, so when my son, uh, my older son, who's thirteen, when he turned ten, we read through the Bible in a year. We picked the New Living Translation (NLT) specifically because it's a sixth grade uh, reading level. Oh, that's brilliant! And so our youngest, who turns ten in a couple of weeks, Bennett and I are starting, and we will use the NLT again purely for pragmatic reasons so that he can understand it right on. as we read every day through the year. So I'll use the NLT on that. However, last year, a good friend of ours, uh, who's also a seminary professor, I said, what translation do you use? And he said, I use the New Jerusalem Bible. And I'm like, New Jerusalem? He said, it's actually a Catholic translation. I said, what? I said, you're not Catholic? He said, I know. But he said, and he gave me all the reasons, really good reasons. Uh, and the footnotes uh, in there are fantastic. And I found it to be helpful. So for last year, I used the New Jerusalem Bible, and it has the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha in it. <laughs> Didn't quite spend a whole lot of time in Our there. Anglican brothers are like, amen. So, but <laughs> but I found the New Jerusalem Bible to be fascinating yeah. and surprisingly quite helpful for me huh. in my reading. And I think it's because I've never read that translation. Everything felt fresh and new, even in the wording. So there's that. However, just within the last few months. I have a new translation, and I'm not saying it's better than anybody else's translation, but it's created a deepened hunger in me to read the scriptures more. What? And it's, it's have you ever heard of it? It's called Which the is new. funny, because if you know JR, like, that's what he does. Like, <laughs> JR does, he reads the scriptures. <laughs> and so the net, it's called the Net Bible, the New uh, English Translation. Net, N-E-T. N-E-T. And here's what I love about it. Uh, I'm already sold because of the story behind the translation. It's one of the newer translations, and the the Net Bible is the first open source translated Bible in the world. So it's kind of like Wiki Whoa. Wiki Bible. And so what they basically did is they did beta testing on the Net Bible for a long time, and they put it out there, and they invited scholars from all over the world to speak into the translation nuances, and they created over a million notes, scholarly footnotes, based on the net translation. And they refined it over a period of time with several scholars. There were about 20 that were part of the original team. And so that's the first thing, is they had over a million notes. The second thing is, is they said ministry should be free, so there's no copyright on it. And so netbible.org, N-E-T, bible.org, completely free, no copyright whatsoever. They said ministry should be free, so we give it to the world. No So way. already there shows me a lot. You're like, I like these people. I'm like, I like these people because <laughs> of the motivation behind it, number two. Then they created something called the Net Full Notes Bible. And the Full Notes Bible is where they took out of the million notes, they took 61,000 of the notes, the best notes from that, and they put it in a study Bible, but not with cross-references, but of translation. It's not a commentary, but it's translation differences of saying, here's the original Greek phrase. We've taken the freedom of the original Greek phrase to translate it into our English vernacular this way. So it gives both the, the dynamic equivalent Dude. as well as the literal equivalent uh, in those verses of showing you, if we translated it perfectly of the Greek, it would say this, but we chose to translate it this way, and here's why. It's blowing my mind. So oh I have a normal my. net Bible with no uh, none of those notes, just yeah. the translation. And then I have my study Bible downstairs is the net full notes uh, Bible, and it is blowing my mind. I'm absolutely loving it. I'm seeing new insights I've never seen before, new translations. So anyway, I'm not saying it's better than, but than anybody else's. There's not a condescension. It's humility. I'm so grateful right. for these translators. I'm so grateful for what God's doing, his spirit in me to rise something up in me. And actually for years, I've heard people say, oh, I love the net. The net Bible is amazing. <laughs> and I'm always like, oh, okay. You know, every group has their own, right. every tribe yeah. has their own amazing cheerleaders. <laughs> and I'm one of them now. I love what the net Bible does. And so I'm not paid to say this, by the right. way, by Thomas Nelson, not in any way, shape, <laughs> or form. This is not brought to you by Thomas no, Nelson. No, no. Yeah. But I'm really grateful that there, like, there's no copyright on it. You can go netbible.org right now, and you can read it all for free. You can cut and paste it all for free. Um, the Bible itself is available anywhere Bibles are sold. But uh, 
yeah, that's that's mine. Uh, Doug, do you find the translations that you use um, that you use different ones in different ways? So, for example, maybe your personal devotional life you use this, mm. but when you're prepping to preach, you use this, or when you're preaching, you use that one. If yeah. so, like, how do you decide, and what are they for you? Yeah, that's. I, I mean, to be honest with you, that is something that I really struggle with huh. because sometimes I feel like. It, it almost feels like in some circumstances you're walking through landmines, right? Like mm. it's like I might teach, I might use the message to teach through and someone be like, well, that's not a real translation. Or I mm. might use new living and it's like, well, that's not, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And so for me personally, I, I mean, again, when I'm just reading, uh, when I'm just reading scripture to read scripture, to have it form and work in me and just to, to have the narrative be at the center of my life. I'm going to pick a translation like the NIV or the New Living Translation or the message because it's just pulling it into that space where it's like I get the heart of what's happening in this and yeah. it just ministers deeply to my heart. Um, and when I'm teaching, I, I like to try to, to stay uh, closer to like the new revised standard version mm -hmm. or in, in a version that is probably in the hands of the people that have walked into the church. And I'll even yeah, ask, them, like if I'm speaking at a different church, I'll even ask the pastor, uh, like, yeah, sure. Hey, what translation do you guys use? Because, and if, when they say, Oh, we're all over the place. That's when I know, like, that's a message that, that translates to, you can use the message, you know, <laughs> where if it's like, well, we're, we're, you know, NIV only, it's like, well, then I better stick to the NIV. Yeah. Um, how about you? Do you, yeah, well, like I mentioned, you know, with with uh, my son's NLT, personally now Net, but that's where I would use the NIV. Right. But then I would use more more literal translations when I was doing teaching prep gotcha. or research and things like that. But I do love to, to bounce around, and certainly <coughs> websites like BibleGateway.com and things like that are like incredibly helpful because I can just bounce back and forth a lot. But yeah, I mean. I'm in with a net right now. So yeah. net without full notes is what I'm using devotionally. And now net with the full notes is my study Bible. And uh, and I'm loving it. So we'd love to hear from you. Let us know. We'll put in the show notes our email address. What translation do you use? That's important. But more importantly, we want to hear why you use it and uh, and how it's shaping and impacting you. We'd love to know that. Stephen Roach is the founder of the Breath and the Clay Creative Arts Movement, an international community of artists and creatives. He hosts the Makers and Mystics podcast and travels as a keynote speaker and creative coach, conducting workshops and live events centered on the exploration of creativity and the spiritual life. He's the author of four volumes of poetry and an illustrated children's book. Alongside of speaking and writing, Stephen is a multi-instrumentalist. His band, The Songs of Water, has toured internationally. Creativity is in his bones, and in those bones, he carries with him a background in ethnomusicology and composing for film and television. Enjoy this conversation with Stephen Roach. Well, Stephen, it's great to have you here on the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast with us. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, we got to tell the story of how we met. We were a couple, <laughs> just recently, I landed in Nashville and got in a lift and we, and then another person jumped in and then we were waiting for a third guy and you jumped in, you're wearing your, your musician hat and we met and had this a great conversation about what you were doing. And then you say, well, I run something called the breath in the clay. And I'm like, wait a second. The wheels are turning. I think there's some people at our church that are familiar with this. So anyway, but uh, that was a great way to connect. But then two hours later, I walk in a restaurant and I look over and there's the guy I shared the lift ride with. There was Stephen Roach. So uh, yeah, I admit, I thought you were creeping on me, man. I, I, I wasn't sure what to do with that, but it turns out it was just one of those beautiful occasions. <laughs> I love those opportunities to connect with people. And uh, even Michael and Lindsay Smith, who are part of our church here in the Philadelphia area said, Oh, you should see if Stephen would come on the podcast. And, uh, 
Sure enough, here we are. Here we are. I just thought he was going to start like a new section for Monday Morning Pastor called The People We Share Lift Rides With. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Let's do it. That's great. Well, we mentioned that you run an organization called The Breath in the Clay. Uh, For those of us who aren't familiar with it, what is The Breath in the Clay? Tell us the story behind even the name and a little bit of the history of it. Sure, sure. Well, The Breath in the Clay has my wife and I started this in 2014. So it's, it's been going for a while. Um, but we're friends with the pastor and I worked at his church off and on over the years in Winston Salem, North Carolina, which is known. The motto of the city is the city of arts and innovation. Mm. So the pastor of the church approached me and he said, would you be willing to, to do a weekend focused on the arts, you know? And at that point I was touring, uh, with the band songs of water pretty full time. And, uh, and so it was a new thing, but I said, sure, I'll do it. We put something together in like a month. We had like a 75, hundred local people came out to it. It was just a good time, but, um, you know, all throughout the year, people continue to email us and say, are you going to do another one of those events or whatever, you know? And I said, well, maybe, maybe so. And so we did another one the following year. We didn't really know what we were doing again, but 200 people came to this thing, you know? And, um, a good friend of mine, many of your listeners would know John Mark McMillan, Mm -hmm. uh, but he has been a supporter and and kind of a co-conspirator in this thing with us for, from the beginning. And he, he came up to me and he said, listen, I really get the sense that you're stewarding something here that you need to pay attention to. That this, this just feels more significant than a little local arts thing. And so I took him at his word and I said, all right, I'll, I'll really lean into this. So here we are now uh, in March of this year. I'm not sure when this podcast is coming out, but in March of this year, um, we are hosting our seventh one. Last year, we had about 650 people come out and they're coming from all over the world from as far as London, Australia and South Africa to be a part of what we're doing. So it's just been amazing to see this thing really take off. And it's just really shown me the hunger within communities of faith to have discussions around creativity, around culture, around art, and how these things intersect with one another. You asked me kind of the meaning of the breath in the clay. Um, that's real simple. That comes from Genesis, you know, and the first act of creation, uh, with mankind. And so for us, you know, some people are like, well, I'm not an artsy person or I don't have a creative bone in my body. And so they're a little intimidated to come out or they think, well, this is just for the, the, is this just for professional visual artists or musicians or whatever? And the truth of it is, is no, it's like at, at the core of what we do is this conviction that in the beginning, God created those are the first five words of the Bible. And then in verse 26, the first thing you learn about humanity is that we've been created in his image. And so based on all we know about God and all we know about humanity, from the first chapter of Genesis is that he's a creator. He thinks his work is really good and he created us uh, to create in partnership with him. And so that's where the breath and the clay comes from is when he breathes into Adam, breathes into mankind and inspires us to life, if you will. Yeah, that's great. Well, you're not a pastor per se, yet this is a really important conversation that you're stewarding. And I love that you use the word stewarding. And So why are the arts so important? For those that may not be convinced, why are the arts so important for the church? Why is that something that church leaders and kingdom leaders should care deeply about, whether we're artistic or not? Absolutely. I, I, that question is the core of why we've given our lives to this. And, you know, I could come at it from a biblical perspective and say, there's a lot in scriptures that if you, if you approach scripture from this lens, you'll begin to see things that maybe you never recognized before. First thing that comes to my mind is, uh, the first person in scripture who's ever cited as being filled with the spirit of God. It wasn't David. It wasn't Abraham. It wasn't any of the big wigs. It was some little unknown artist named Bezalel that uh, was commissioned to beautify the temple. And so you see that that art and beauty from the very beginning of scripture um, is meant to play a significant role in how we connect to God and how we connect to the creator. And, you know, moving all throughout the scriptures from go to Jeremiah for an example, when God says, hey, Jerry, I want to speak to you, <laughs> but I'm going to take you down to the potter's house and I'm going to watch you engage his creative process. And it's through the creative process that you'll hear my word for the nation. And so, you know, then fast forward to modern day history and it's like, 
You've got the Bob Dylans. You've got these these figures uh, throughout history who are basically prophets in their own right, who are heralding the the social conscience of our nation, you know, and of the world. And so, for me, I think it's a little bit more of an important conversation than whether we have cool music in our services or whether we have art on the walls. Um, but I think that art is how the realm of the spirit, or you could say it, John O'Donohue said it like this. Uh, he said, the invisible hungers to become visible. And so it's through the arts that we make the intangible tangible. It's through the arts that those more ethereal or spiritual concepts become more tangible to us. You know, even, even Jesus himself always spoke in parables, always painted word pictures, always told stories. And so I think there's something here for us to grab hold of, whether, whether you consider yourself an artist or not. And that's one thing that, that we often tell the people that come to our events is we say, you know, creativity is not a talent. Creativity is a way. Creativity is an approach. Creativity is a quality of being. And, you know, you can be a creative business owner. You can be an, a creative accountant. You can be a creative chef. You can be a creative homemaker. You know, it's, it's not just for the fine arts. Mm-hmm. So as you're thinking about the fine arts and as you're kind of blowing that process up and saying, no, this is about being creative, joining with God as co-creators, like what are some of the things that stand in the way? You know, you mentioned a few, but are there bigger things that stand in the way for the church in terms of how we've engaged the arts or just even recognizing the ways in which we've almost put them off onto the shelf? You know, I think one real hurdle that I would love to see us as a community of faith grapple with is that the artist tends to be given to mystery. The artist tends to be given to exploring the unknown, to asking more questions than giving answers, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think by nature, the church, because, you know, the church, uh, says we have the ultimate truth. We, we know the answer, <laughs> right? And so there's this tension where on, on one hand, the church loves certainty. And I think to some degree, us as human beings, we love certainty. We, we, want, we want to know that we know that we know. And the artist, on the other hand, is more concerned with asking questions. The artist is more concerned with testing the boundaries, you know, going, going past what we know. And so I think that if we could find a way to one um, bridge that gap between mystery and certainty. And the other thing I would say is to, and and this would be something that I've um, thought about a lot in, in terms of even church leadership is to relax our tendency toward pragmatism. Mm. And, and in other words, the value of art and the value of creative expression is not always dictated by how it serves a particular ministry or a particular function, uh, but that some, there's an inherent value within beauty itself. Beauty is valuable because it's beautiful. It doesn't have to serve a greater purpose. Mm-hmm. I think ultimately it does serve greater purposes, but, but there's an inherent value within it. So part of it for me is tweaking our perception in a sense. And that's, that's actually the theme of our, of our event this year is perception and how that impacts our relationship to God and the world around us and the art we make. Um, but that there is an inherent value. If, if we see creativity as one of the fundamental characteristics or attributes of the nature of God, then we can get behind creativity because it reflects him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's that's such an interesting um I feel like it's such an interesting framework because for in some ways yeah the way that art that art serve the church has always been like well we need to write a cool song or we need to do this or we need to have a good graphics that really catches people attention in terms of you know the the three points in a poem um but it sounds like what you're saying is that even just the act of of art you know almost like localize or or things that are coming up from artists within a community it's almost like it sparks a sense of awe and wonder again and pulls us out of the the normal life of just, you know, um, oh, this is just so that I have a picture that helps me to think through this, but that it actually opens up even new realms of creativity for people. And it almost like it sounds like you're almost saying like it unleashes something within a congregation. 
Absolutely. It does. And, you know, I think even just uh, the awareness of, of how beauty impacts you on a spiritual level, uh, is, is valuable. And I, I can give you a quick little example of that. And again, you know, I got stuck in the first three chapters of Genesis about eight years ago and I haven't gotten out yet. You know? <laughs> um, but in Genesis two, verse nine, it says that the trees of the garden were made both for beauty and for food. And so what that says to me is that, that what food is to the body, beauty is to the spirit. You know, I don't, you know, and there's nothing wasted in in the scriptures. And so for, for, for God to point out that the trees were made for beauty and for food, it let, it lets me know that there is an inherent need that the human being has for beauty. And you can take so many examples where you're in these destitute situations and then whether it's an orphanage in India or, you know, whatever the the situation, a war torn, you know, scene in Syria. And suddenly you, you introduce beauty into that environment. It begins to change things on a spiritual level within people, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's kind of where I'm coming at from that, you know? Yeah. Then that's, we think this is fantastic. What I'm just thinking of congregations that might be full of, uh, business people or engineers, or maybe the, the less historically creative elements of our culture and saying like, look, I'm not an artistic pastor. I, I don't have any artistic people in my church. Like what, what would you say to them? And I think a lot of what you're saying, you probably would say, but even on a practical level, what are ways that they could then cultivate that if I understand that everybody's creative. It just may not be painting or music. I feel like I'm an idea guy. That's my creativity. I'm learning how to do calligraphy right now. So like so that's that's an area I'm trying to cultivate in my own life. But not everyone's like artistic, you know, in in maybe the traditional term. What would you want to say to them on a practical level of how they might begin to lean in a little bit to just open that up more? Yeah. The first thing that comes to mind, I'll just run with that. But you know curiosity, cultivating curiosity, cultivating attentiveness and cultivating observation. Those type of things impact everything that we do. Um, you know, curiosity really leads us to new discoveries. And so when I talk about creativity, I essentially mean, you know, looking at something through a different lens, you know, looking at something with anticipation of encountering something new or maybe seeing something that you haven't seen before. And I think that fosters life, that fosters an environment of life. You know, we are creatures of habit. We like things to be the same. You know, we, we, we like to, to go to the same old chair and sit in the same old spot. And there's something comforting about that, but it also just leads to inertia (laughs) and eventually death. You know, life really is about engaging and, and continuing this process of forward movement. And so whether someone would consider themselves artistic or creative, we all can really be intentional with the way that we approach life, the way that we approach scriptures. What if, what if we approach scripture with the anticipation of finding out something new about God every time that we approached it? Or what if we approached it with this anticipation of finding out something new about ourselves every time that we approached it? Uh, really, it just comes down to how we approach life. And, and if we are anticipating something new. I mean, come on, if, if God is an infinite God, we're never going to exhaust what we can learn about God. Mm. Right. Mm. But we do think that we know everything about God and we get bored and we just repeat the same things over and over. Um, you know what I'm saying? So for some of those congregations that are maybe less inclined toward the arts, I think that we can still foster a sense of life that comes from curiosity, attentiveness, observation, and really just um, anticipation of, of encountering God in new ways. Listeners, we're grateful to be part of a collective of podcasts through Missio Alliance. We'd like to take a moment to highlight one of our partners.
Hi, I'm Deb Gregory, curator and host of the Betwixt podcast. Have you ever wondered how transformation actually happens? Well, that's the guiding question at the Betwixt podcast with fascinating guests like Walter Brueggemann, Tish Harrison-Warren, Michael Card, Kathy Kong, and so many more. We open up the liminal spaces betwixt and between one thing and another. These are the practices, the people, the places that shape us and where God cultivates deep transformation within us. So I hope you'll come on by and join the conversation. You can find us at betwixtpodcast.com, mistyoualliance.org, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. This almost sounds like a theology of beauty and creativity that you're developing. You haven't used the the T word theology, but in many senses, I I think the onus does fall on pastors and other church leaders to what are we doing to articulate or to explain, to find it to be a compelling element of theology is the theology of beauty and of creativity. Um, Have you found that creativity and beauty in your own life or in the other artists that you work with comes out of suffering? or out of pain? Mm-hmm. That's a deep question there. <laughs> I don't know how much time you have. I'll try to be concise. <laughs> um, you know, I do know in my own life that there was a time really when I was coming to faith that uh, despair, depression, darkness, you know, all these negative things, that was the only catalyst I knew for creativity because it was really coming from a place of desperation. Um, and I was really afraid. I remember even, I even wrote in one of my journals a long time ago, I said, what of the poet who has been healed? What happens then? Mm. I was really concerned that if I got healed, that I was going to be relegated to making Hallmark greeting cards and that my poetry and writing (laughs) would just become this trite, shallow, Uh. lacking depth type of thing, you know? Mm. Um, but now I, I don't see it that way. I think that there is, a, there is a depth to joy and a depth to delight that rivals any depth of, of despair uh, as far as a creative catalyst. Now, I will say this. When you read the book of Psalms, you see the gamut of human emotion being brought into the place of devotion. And so I think that that's something that is key and something that's important for us and for the, and for the body of Christ, for the community of faith, um, is that we leave room for that, that whole gamut of human emotion to be brought into the place of devotion. Um, it is easy for us to say, you know, because we know the truth, because we have the answers, let's just celebrate and don't think about anything else. Uh, but you have to cut out a large part of the Bible in order to hold that viewpoint, you know? So I don't necessarily believe, uh, in wallowing in our suffering, but I do think that creativity can become a passageway for suffering to find its way or stumble its way toward redemption. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So thinking about the way suffering can be used to stumble, and I love that imagery of stumbling our way to redemption. Um, what what are some ways that you're, you've really been noticing that within some of the artists that you have been working with through Breath in the Clay and things like that? Like what's a story of redemption that you've just, that just comes to mind very quickly? Mm-hmm. Well, I know that one of my favorite worship bands is a band called Loud Harp, and uh, they're you know they they wouldn't be as well known uh, in the mainstream circles of worship, but Loud Harp is an incredible worship crew from out in Boulder, Colorado, and uh, one of them lives in Utah. But their songs are what I would consider journey songs. And so often they begin in this place of, of darkness or this place of grappling with something. But then by the end of it, you recognize that this has been worked in the presence of God, you know? And so that's one thing that I've seen is actually bringing our journey uh, to the creative process, to our songs, to our worship. And, and just, and, and, and less in the creative process, uh, we have a creative collective I mentioned earlier, I think, but we, we do book discussions on a, on a monthly basis. And sometimes in our book discussions, we work through those processes together. We, we talk about, um, the raw reality of what we feel. It's, 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 it's funny today. I just posted on the breath and the clays Instagram, this quote about the tension of belief and doubt. And, uh, this may be a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it's to your point 
that there, there are kind of two different approaches to doubt within the body of Christ. One is doubt is sinful. It's, it's, it's to be avoided. It has, it's, it's detrimental to the faith. Get rid of it at all costs. The other view of doubt is that doubt can actually become a friend to faith and that doubt actually helps us come to a genuine place of faith. And I just put it out there for conversation. So if you go look, you're going to see people arguing against what I said and arguing for it. But that's what we love. That The other thing is one of our core values is leaving room for discussion mm. within these things. I'm not trying to tell you what to believe, but I will give you several perspectives to consider. So when you're talking about whether it's suffering and, and redemption or whether it's talking about doubt and faith, I think if we leave room for people to be in process, we'll end up with uh, more of a, of a genuine friendship with God rather than just another religious convert. Yeah, yeah that's great. That's great. In fact, it's funny you, you said this, Stephen. Just this morning, I was in Mark 9, end of Mark 9, that story of that heartbreaking father who has this child who's demon-possessed, you know? And the disciples can't do it. They can't cast out the demon, you know? And he says, if you can do anything, if you can. And he says, I believe, but help me with my unbelief, which I think yeah. is the world's greatest prayer. <laughs> the most honest prayer ever prayed totally. is, I believe, but what if when I don't, help me. And I love that so tension good. there. Um, and it even reminds me of something that St. Teresa of Avila hundreds of years ago said, this spunky little saint. She said, God, I don't love you. God, I don't want to love you. But God, I want to want to love you. Yeah, so good. And I just think God is honored in that in that kind of prayer and that wrestling. And you know, here on the podcast, um, when Doug and I talk with guests, you know, who are a lot of them have experienced failure or setback or rejection or depression, suicidal thoughts. We we've run the gamut uh, here. Um, many of them, yeah, it's doubt that actually sprung them towards deeper trust in 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 Jesus. And it's hard to. I mean, I, I some would argue. You can't have faith until you first doubt the object of that faith you put right. your faith in. And so, um, yeah, yeah, I think that's an important, important yeah. dynamic. And I think, too, I really appreciate how you're, you're telling such a unique story through Breath and Clay in terms of um, I feel like a lot of artists that I know have uh, or the, the artists that I, I hear that the main narrative is like artists are moving away from faith. Um, because mm -hmm. it just, and maybe it's because it's been too constricted or whatever, but I just really appreciate the way you guys are telling the story of actually faith and art are like deeply interconnected yes. spaces, which actually, I think what's really interesting is, you know, as the, the podcast called the Monday morning pastor, you experience a lot of the same thing as an artist and as someone who was in pastoral ministry, um, in terms of the temptations of what happens when we're on stage in front, when we pour out something that we've spent so much time in, it's beautiful. Um, and so what are some of those temptations that you, uh, that you experience as, as a musician, as an artist, um, as it relates to performance and leadership? Mm-hmm. It's a good question. And I've thought a lot about it and I've written a lot about it, but this idea of performance, you know, it's a very dicey term because on the one hand, I think when we in the church, when we use that term, you know, don't perform, don't perform, we mean it like, you know, we want an authentic expression of service to the Lord. You're not doing this to, to seek uh, or a response uh, from the from the congregation or the audience or whatever, you know, be genuine. Don't perform. Don't do this to gain approval, right? And so I totally get that. But when you say the word performance in the art world, it means something totally different. We work our lives to learn how to perform, to be able to perfect this uh, this this presentation that we're speech or you know whatever it is. And so I think we kind of have to go back and and talk through some of the semantics of, of what we're saying here. Mm. Um, and so for me, I, I can, I can say that I've, I've learned, I want to perform not to gain approval, but I want to perform because I know I've been approved. Mm. So it changes it. So that way I can, I can enter into a space where I give what I've got to give without needing to take something from the audience. Yeah, that's great. Uh, that's it's kind great. of a holy, uh, I, I like the phrase, holy indifference, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I, and I think that there's a, there's a, there's a place where you're right. We don't, we don't need to, um, I mean, if we're all, if we're all honest, we're all mixed bags on the journey, you know? So it's not like I, right. 
we're all on the journey. But um, I do think it's important to be grounded in a, a secret place, if you want to use that language, or in in the presence of God that is you and God one-on-one. I often say, I don't want to walk out from the secret place. I want to walk out in the secret place. Mm -hmm. So whether I'm standing before people or in my private room, you're going to get the same thing, you know? Um, but I, but again, and maybe this is what you were getting at is that sometimes when we have these larger than life experiences, there's no way to avoid that. It's elating. It feeds you. It, it's an encounter. When you stand in front of an audience or you stand in front of a congregation and you've just given something that is full of the spirits, full of something so beyond you, people look at you, they often attribute it to your own charisma or whatever it is. It's like there is a stewardship again, to use that word when we leave the stage, um, to be able to steward that moment. Um, because, uh, you know, being an artist, it really is highs and lows. I mean, you know, not to put the stereotype out there, but I'm either like in a state of euphoria or it's just like the depths of despair. I don't, it's taken me a long time to try to find that middle ground where, you know, my, my wife is, is the most even kill person you'll meet, you know, but like, I'm like, either here or I'm here, you know? And, and so I think that that's one thing we do have to have to learn is how to land the plane. Mm. And, and when you come out of these euphoric experiences, when you come out of these high peak moments that we, we know that what we gave was an overflow of who we are, but it's not the core of who we are. Mm. And, mm. and so I guess a simple way to say it is, is to cultivate being centered in the presence of God so that what you give out in public is the same thing that you take in in private. Yeah. Yeah. That's boy, that's really good. And I, I think whether we're musicians or we're pastors or we're leaders from a stage and, and Stephen, I'd love for you to speak into this because it's really hard for me to see really gifted preachers who have no character, who have not spent time in the secret place, who are actually depending upon the elation that comes from the applause and the approval from other people. So, as you coach other leaders and musicians um, that come from a from a you know kingdom background, how are you coaching them uh, where they've got all the skill in the world, but it's the character that's lacking? It's the the identity that's lacking that's rooted in Christ, where they're expecting my performance and how well I do will determine who I am and my worth. How do you how do you speak to musicians who might be stuck in that conundrum like I've seen other pastors and leaders do? Yeah. Uh, I'll just give you a story from my own life because that's really the only place of authority I can speak from. And I remember years ago I just you know, I just come fresh into the kingdom and and I just could not wait to get behind my guitar and just get on that stage. And because I know I'm destined for this. And it's the same thing in the scripture when Peter, they knew they were destined for this great thing, you know, they, they it burned in them. And there's something beautiful and right about that to know that, that there is this beautiful invitation that God has, has given to us, you know, that he's invited us into this thing. But I was so eager to get on the stage and do my thing. But no matter how hard I tried, the stage evaded me. <laughs> you know, I just couldn't get up there, whether I was not accepted on a worship team or whether I, you know, I, my music was too weird. That's happened a couple of times, but, uh, <laughs> you know, um, but then eventually I, I, I began to say, I'm going to cultivate presence. And so I had a little prayer room at that time. I was living in a crazy community house with about 13 artists. So that's a whole different story. But we had this one room in the basement that was set apart and there was nothing in there but a lamp and a table and a Bible. And every day I began to go into that room. And at first five minutes felt like five hours. I mean, like I couldn't, you know, I would just go and I would sing a psalm. And then eventually five hours began to feel like five minutes to me. And I had forgotten all about the stage at that point. And, and when I no longer needed the stage to fill that place in me, I had gotten that satisfaction. I had gotten that um, from that little prayer room that we had in our community house. I began to get invitations that I wasn't seeking after. I began to get invitations to come and lead, and then it would lead to this, lead to this. And, and at that point, I was like, yeah, I really don't want to go out there and do that in public. I, I'm kind of happy down here now. Mm -hmm. And so it was when that shift happened in my own heart. And so I just 
you ask, what do I say when I coach people? I coach people to cultivate um, the private life. I look at it like that imagery of the, av- of, not the avalanche, but of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. You only, you know, what you see in public is only 10% of what's really happening underneath the surface, you know? Um, and I think that's the way I look at it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that there's something so important about cultivating that, especially in people who are on stages or, and whether that stage is at a church or at a music venue or at a business or at a boardroom, it really doesn't matter. But I think you're, you're onto something really crucial. And I believe part of, of what we struggle with, what we're really trying to do with the Monday morning pastor is even just equip people with some of those like tidbits in those places where, where we actually begin to practice those. So what are some practices that you would encourage people just to help cultivate some of that stuff? Yeah. Yeah. I think cultivating healthy rhythms in your life is important for whatever you're going after. Um, that's one thing that I think the church has been really good at. It's like, you know, even having every Sunday, it's like, we're creating a rhythm, you know, or, or encouraging like Oswald Chambers readings, you know, you've got this, this daily reading, which by the way, rabbit trail that some people might not know, Oswald Chambers was an artist and a musician before he ever became the minister that we know him as. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. And if you go back and read uh, some of the early writings and some of his biography, his heart was to bring the arts back into the community of faith. And anyway, that's a, that's a whole, you can, you can listen. I did an artist profile on him on the makers and mystics podcast on Oswald Chambers where I talk about that story, but anyway, good. But I think cultivating rhythm and, and I do think um, really having partnership with other people is important. One thing, not only, for the artists, but for many of us, we, especially for pastors and people in leadership, we get tunnel vision because we've got so much on our plate. We're, we're carrying so much. We don't have the bandwidth for anything outside of our own vision. I was talking to my friends about this the other day, because most of my friends just happen to be really famous musicians or people that are doing awesome stuff in the world, but I've known them since before that nobody knew their name. And so we've just managed to keep in touch, but we were talking about how important it is for our friendships not to be centered around events or for our, our, our friendships not to be centered around ministry or things like that. And so those type of things would be what I would suggest we cultivate, finding genuine friendships and, and people that can walk alongside us, establishing rhythms, being intentional, and, um, and just cultivating a lifestyle that way. Mm-hmm. That's really good. That's really good. Just as we're landing the plane here, one of the questions that we like to ask regularly is, uh, of our guests is, and this is kind of deep, but what are some lies that you're tempted to believe in your particular role? Uh, maybe especially when you're discouraged or you're down, or you talked about the ups and downs. When you're down, what are some lies as a leader that you're tempted to believe? Mm-hmm. I think one thing that I personally have wrestled with, and I think something that so many people uh, in ministry and in art grapple with is comparison. And I, I wrote a short little booklet. People can download it for free. It's called five creativity killers and how to avoid them. And in that book, I go through four different types of fear, uh, fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear of the unknown and fear of success. I go through comparison I go through perfectionism. I go through distraction. And then the last chapter, which my wife made me rewrite about five times is uh, religion, <laughs> but how, uh, <laughs> how religion could be a creativity killer. Yeah. Um, but for me, comparison comes to mind it's, with what you're saying, especially because we are such a visually driven culture right now with Instagram, with, uh, with Facebook, with everything that everything is so visually driven in our culture. And we look and we see how cool somebody else's life is. Or we see somebody else standing before 10,000 people. And then suddenly the magic of standing before 10 people at the prayer breakfast no longer looks so appealing, you know? So we start comparing ourselves to what other people have done. And, and we subtly move out of the space of authenticity. We subtly move out of the space of moving in the, in the authority that we have been given for where we are, you know, and when we start looking at ourselves as less than, 
we start looking at what we have as less than others. And, and that to me has been very damaging uh, when you give into that thing. Yeah. Stephen, I've just really appreciated your heart uh, and just the way you've shared so much about the arts. And I feel like this is super encouraging for our pastors uh, and for kingdom leaders, because we have this is something that I feel like we have to redeem and reclaim and begin to see as not just a cool add-on, but actually deeply connected with who we are as as, as followers of Jesus. Um, but the, the last question I just want to leave you with is, um, so as the one who leads this creative movement, when was, tell us about the last time you were moved by a creative work. Probably about an hour ago. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, Last time I was moved by a creative work. That's a good question because I'm, I'm around music and art every day. And I think I'm more moved by the people that are creating the works than I am even the works. What really moves me is seeing people get free from the things that have hindered the things that are really inside of them. You know, so the, the works are an overflow for me. I get excited about beautiful art. I visit museums and uh, I got to stand before a Salvador Dali painting earlier this year. And, um, those things are very moving to me, but I think what moves me more is when I see the people that are, are walking alongside of us or, or looking to us for, for guidance. When I see them get free to actually live out whatever it is that, that God's put inside of them, that's, that's what really moves me. And when people find out that they've got permission to be weird and that not everything has to have a, um, a prototype or in, in order to be validated, that when people see that, you know, the things we take for granted in scripture actually were, they didn't have a scripture for it when the scripture was written, you know. And there's some weird art in the Bible. If you want to talk about Ezekiel's <laughs> performance art in downtown Jerusalem, let's, let's talk about that, you know? That's, let, 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 go to your local pastor and tell him that God's giving you a vision for this performance art. Like, you're going to cook your food? Never mind. <laughs> you know where, where I'm going with this. But, but, but when people find the freedom to live out that beautiful individual person that God's created him to be. That's, that's what moves me. Mm -hmm. So Stephen, I would, I'd love, first of all, thank you for that. Could you end this podcast just by a prayer for freedom for artists and for creatives among mm -hmm. us? Yes. I, I would be honored to do that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, God, thank you so much for being the creator and for being uh, the divine initiator, the one that shows us the way and then invites us to follow. Lord, thank you that from the very beginning, you invited us into creative partnership with you when Adam was naming the animals and you just in invited us into that space. And so Lord, I just pray for every pastor and every leader and every community listening to this um, I just ask that that fresh wind of creativity would just, that fresh inspiration would just inspire them and their communities to a new way of engaging you, to a new way of engaging one another, a new way of engaging life and of doing ministry. And I just pray that you would just blow off the dust from anything that's settled and that new life would rest upon us and that, Lord, that we could all together um, as a family, come to the place where we recognize that we were created to be um, creative co-partners with you in bringing heaven to earth. So I leave that with my friends today in Jesus name. Amen. so glad that I had a lift ride with Stephen Roach. That was super fun. I love how you're just like getting these great interviews from lift rides now. <laughs> Is there like a premium charge that you have with Lyft? Like, hey, put me in a car with someone interested. Ironically, our driver was like not the best. So <laughs> really? I'm really glad that the other riders made it oh. very interesting. Yeah, I, I've always had a great experience with Lyft, but I just, yeah, it was, I had to rate him only three stars. Dang. So...
Dang. Anyway, wasn't awful, but wasn't yeah. great. Wonder- but I'd rate my conversation with Steven as like five and a half stars, six was, stars. That out was of five. a six star conversation. It we was. Just had. We could have kept talking with him, which is just great. And I think what really, when he was talking about this, you know, this idea of he didn't use it, but I mentioned it like a theology of beauty and creativity. And I love that he was willing to talk about his own suffering and how the suffering, he used this phrase, suffering helps us to stumble into redemption. Like what a great, what a great word, stumble or even limp into it. And uh, I thought that was, that was really, really helpful. Even, I mean, the way he traced the creativity throughout scripture. Um, when he started, you talked about Genesis 2, 9, that the food yes. was made for beauty, as uh, the, the trees were made for beauty as well as for food. food. I never noticed that detail. I haven't either. <laughs> that was so cool. And, um, and, and the details too, it reminded me that in our inspired scriptures are several chapters in the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible about specific details of how to make the temple. It must be this height. It must use this kind of gold. It must be this kind of bronze on the bowls. And you're like, who cares? God cares. God cares. Because it's about beauty. That's and that, so good. And that really stuck out to me. And I'm really grateful. And then lastly, you talk about cultivating our private world. Uh-huh. That was a great phrase. Like, And that's what we are talking about here. But that's good language of cultivating our private world that's really going to stick with me. So what stuck out to you? Uh, I know this is your first time meeting Steven. Yeah, well, I I, I mean, the Genesis stuff, I, I feel like yeah. in the last year, two of the most important conversations that we've had uh, at the Monday Morning Pastor have had some kind of throwback to Genesis. I think yes. Dave Bindewald yes. and some of the I stuff he was talking Bindewald. about. I was like, dude, yes, these guys I, we've got to introduce they Bindewald need to and Steven. Let's yes. do that. We yeah. need to do that. We, it, would, it, would, it would only be honorable for us to yes. do that. Yes, that would be a way we'd be creative is yeah. to introduce them. But I, I really, the thing for me is how, how I think the way that art really gives it, it's like, it's given to mystery. And I think for art to be created for art's sake and not to just have a purpose or a use was so key. It was so important to me because I think we always think about how do we, how do we monetize this or how do we use this for something or what does it do? But maybe it's, it's whole goal is just to inspire beauty and awe and wonder and, and, and how that is such an important connection piece to how we see God in the world around us. So yeah, I I it's I feel like even walking home today, I'm gonna be encouraged to look at the world that I encounter differently. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, the, the idea that beauty takes us out of the status quo and that God is so good, especially the Holy Spirit is so good about taking, like he's so bad at status quo, but he's so good at fresh new things. Uh-huh. And I'm so grateful that status quo is not in his job description. Me too. You know? And beauty, if beauty is what rocks us or jolts us out of our status quo, then beauty should be an important part of our own formation. And I think that's the theology of beauty and creativity that Stephen was talking about, which is great. So let's do a couple of resources and some questions. And then, um, uh, Doug, you'll send us out. But uh, some resources we talked about, I mean, he talked about the iceberg, right? What's below the surface, um, that reminded me of a lot of, uh, we've mentioned this before, Peter, Peter Scazzaro's The Emotionally Healthy Church, The Emotionally Healthy Leader, The Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, uh, resources that are available by Peter Scazzaro. So that's one, if we want to cultivate the private world, we, you know, it's always near the top of our list, number one. Um, and then also want to encourage you to check out The Breath and the Clay. Uh, the website, we'll have that in the show notes to see this arts movement that Stephen is a part of, and maybe even want to go to the event, which is coming up here in a few weeks and uh, w- down in North Carolina. But listen to his podcast too, the Makers and Mystics podcast that he leads if you want to hear more from Stephen and be introduced even further to what he's doing. And then lastly, he talked about his ebook, The Five Creativity Killers. We'll put that in the show notes as well, but that's on the website uh, as well that you can uh, download for free. Uh, but Doug, what are some questions that we can ponder? Yeah, I, th- I think a question that'd be really helpful is who is one creative, one or two creatives in your community or or in your sphere right now that you can encourage and just just thank them for it, or maybe even um, uh, lovingly encourage them to create something in the next few weeks. And so, yeah, who's someone you can encourage? And I think the second one is this: uh, he mentioned curiosity, attentiveness. And um, observation as being these these keys of cultivating creativity within your community. And so, uh, how where, how can you cultivate curiosity, attentiveness, and observation in the next week? What would that look like for you? Yeah. 
And so pastors and leaders, um, may you recognize that you have been fearfully and wonderfully made. You've been created creatively and that you've been created with creativity in your bones. It's actually in your DNA. May you recognize that as you do all of life, whether it's uh, changing diapers or spending time in a lift car or spending time composing a new song or writing a sermon or doing your taxes, that God has given you this ability to create, to co-create with him. May you recognize that as something that is deeply embedded in who you are as a person. May you also begin to recognize that in others. And may you, in the in the positions that you have, call that out from a world that is so starving for beauty, for the sake of beauty. As you go in that knowledge, may you recognize his goodness. Amen. Amen.